it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by... Andrew Sather, and Dave Ahern, to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. All right, folks, well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 101. Tonight, Andrew and I are going to talk about a listener letter that we got, and it is a fantastic letter, and she has some really, really great questions. And so Andrew and I wanted to just kind of read through her letter and then just answer those questions for her on the air. So I thought this would be a lot of fun. So Andrew, why don't you go ahead and start talking about the letter, and then we'll just do our little back and forth thing. Yeah, I love it. It's a great letter. This is from Susan G. So... She starts off, Dear Andrew, I'm on episode 16 of the podcast and I've learned more about finance from your program than I did in my years at B-School in the late 70s. Wharton for two years, then decided to switch to a psych degree on the liberal arts side. Wow, that's quite a compliment. Yeah, it is. I got, <laughs> thank you. I got serious about investing when I returned full-time to work in 2009. Um, basically built up a 401k, I'm summarizing here. Uh, until from 2009 to 2017. Okay. And then stopped building up the 401k. Uh, She says, I'm 61 single and only about a third of the way to where I need to be to even have a modest retirement. I am currently on disability and I'm not sure what is next work-wise. So 370k and 401k, 62k and Roth IRA, 100k in cash. Can value investing be part of my solution for current or future income? It appeals to me and is consistent with the process part of my brain. Um, maybe a, maybe we address this part first. There's a bunch of questions here. So I guess first thing I would say just before we even get started, uh, Dave, and then I'll let you kind of answer this first question, what you think. Okay. Um I don't. So I read through the whole letter. I didn't see any talk about like social security and where that comes in. So I think, you know, a lot of us get this idea that our retirement needs to fund everything. Uh, I know like when I first started out, I forgot about social security. So maybe, you know, when you're planning it out, include social security, like a rough estimate, what you think you'll get. Uh, Maybe include the idea that your house is paid off by then, hopefully, right? So those two things could have a huge impact and, and make how much you really need for retirement a lot less than what 
people generally think. Um, so other than that, you know, uh, can value investing be part of my solution for current or future income? Dave, what do you think? Uh, I would agree with that. I mean, considering you have to consider the uh, impact that Social Security will have on your retirement because it is going to be income that you are getting. Now, is it going to be a lot of money? Uh, generally, no, it's not going to be like enough for you to live on for whatever your current needs are at the time that you retire, because generally as you get closer to retirement, you're going to be earning the most that you most likely will be able to during the course of your lifetime. So once you go into that change of, you know, hey, I'm not going to go to work today at nine o'clock and I'm just going to go sit on the patio. Uh, there's a, a change that happens with that. And part of that is, you know, the income is going to be different. Uh, and depending on you, how you have your retirement set up, you do have to calculate to that part of it in there. And as Andrew has talked, you know, a hundred gazillion times about dividends and the impact that they can have on your income. That is one of the ways that you can help yourself is by setting up income streams with your investments and whether it's through your 401k, your Roth IRA, or even just the cash that you have, if you have it in some sort of securities or even bonds or money market accounts or anything like that, those are all things that are going to throw off other cash. Now, is it going to be tons of money? Maybe, maybe not, depending on which ones you can you can find, but it is still going to be part of the income and you can you can count on that part of it as what you're going to be taking in, just like you did if you had a regular job. And I think that's really what you kind of want to look at. And I absolutely think the value investing could be any part of your solution for current or for future income, especially for the future part of the income, because as you're finding deals on things, you are going to be able to allow those deals, quote unquote, to mature and they're going to gain momentum and gather more and more not only from the dividends, but also from just the appreciation of the price of that particular stock, whatever it may be. And you don't have to have, you know, one big winner. If even if you don't have 10 modest winners, that's still going to get you where you want to go. It doesn't have to be, you know, you buy Amazon when it first comes out because, you know, th those are hard to find. And I think sometimes people get caught up in the rat race of I have to hit the home runs. You don't always have to hit the home runs. And if that's not something that appeals to you or is part of the, as she put it, process part of her brain, even if you can find five to 10 consistent winners, that's going to put you where you want to be too. You know, you don't have to have the Mike Trout to win the World Series. You can do it with a bunch of other Buster Posies, if you will. So, um, sorry, I had to slip into baseball. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it's a great uh, you know, I think, yeah, <laughs> I, had to, I had to throw that in there. But I, I really do think that value investing can be part of, of your solution. I mean, the two guys that we talk about the most and, are, you know, and look up to the most, you know, Buff, uh, Munger's going to be 95 now and Buffett's 88, 89, somewhere in that range. So I think they've done okay with the value investing. And, you know, they're continuing down that path, even though they're obviously past retirement age you know it's it's still something that i think you can use well 100 and it doesn't just apply to stocks too if you're the type of person who wants to be more conservative and you, you can still use a value investing process with bonds rather than stocks i would say the stock market's a lot easier to learn and it has a lot less involved because the bond market 
um, doesn't have all the tools. The, all the all the attention goes to the stock market. There's not much attention in the bond market. But with the bond market, you can get that current income, future income. Um, and as long as the company that you hold in those bonds doesn't go bankrupt, you don't. You'll never lose that investment, and you'll get consistent income from that. And you can use a value investing approach, same as you would for stocks. So. You look at the bond coupon, you look at the balance sheet of, of the company that you're going to buy a bond in, and that can be one way. And you, you know, you can just you can mix and match. It's not I, I liked what, what Dave was talking about with that analogy about you don't have to find a home run, you can just do little base hits. And that's exactly the same. You can do a mix of stocks and bonds if you don't think, you know, we we've talked before and really there's no guarantees with the stock market, and especially the shorter your time frame and time period that you're looking to invest in the stock market, the more risky it is and the, the higher chance that you'll lose money. But we've talked before, you know, a five-year horizon is better than a one-year. And and there's data on this. I, I wish I remember which episode we, we, we shared this data exactly, but five-year time period is better than one year, 10 years better than five-year. Um, if you get up to 10 years, your chances are pretty good that you're going to make money no matter what, as long as, you know, your invest. I'm talking about the total stock market right now, the, the total average. And then, you know, once you get to 20 year time period, there's never been a 20 year time period of investing in stocks where you lost money. Even like the 2009, that was one of the greatest crashes we've seen, right? If you had bought 20 years prior, I'm not going to try to do that math right now, but even if you had bought 20 years prior and, and you sold right at the worst time in 2009, you still would have made money in the stock market. So, there's no one answer. Um, it's going to be depend on what time frame you're, you you want to plan for, how much risk you want to take, how comfortable you are with your stock picking skills, how how that builds over time. But that value investing doesn't need to be. You don't have to do it the way I do it, right? You don't have to do it the way Dave does it. it it's a personal thing. Um, but hundred percent, I can say this with full confidence. Learning about value investing will be. So worth your while. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. 
After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. It It is going to pay dividends, no pun intended, uh, over, yeah, over, over the long term than just about any other, you know, style of, you know, learning that you're going to do. And, um, you know, one of the questions she asked here was, you know, should I combine value investing with other strategies? Again, that's going to come back to your own personal preference and your own personal risk tolerance. And really kind of like Andrew was saying about your time horizon, everybody has a different clock and what I think may be bold, you know, Andrew may not, you know, and I'll give you a perfect example. You know, I took my daughter to a water park just recently and she and I went down the really big slides that, you know, mostly the older kids go down and she was loving it. You know, she's a daredevil. When I was her age, I would have never done that. I would have been terrified beyond belief. And so it's just, you just never know what your tolerance is for risk. And I think that has a, a, a large bearing on some of the decisions that you make. Value investing with other strategies, there are, are lots of different ways that you can look at value investing. There's ways that you can look at it where it's just strictly numbers and that's all you look at. You just base everything on intrinsic value and that, that's what you go with. Or you can look at value investing as I'm going to use you know, the numbers to figure out a range of what I think a company is worth. And then I'm going to try to use my experience and my intelligence aspect of it. And do I think it's going to be something that's going to grow? And those are all things that you can learn as you go along this process. And the thing I love about value investing is a, like Andrew was saying, everybody's going to do it a little bit differently, even though Andrew and I are really good friends and we love doing this podcast together. We don't have the same, we come at it from a little bit different angles. We agree on a lot of things, but there are certain things that I like to do that he doesn't. And for a variety of reasons, and it doesn't mean that I'm right and he's wrong or vice versa. It just means that we're a little bit different. And even if you take Charlie and Warren, they come at it from a different way. Monish Pabrai is completely different from the both of them and Guy Spear. And just, you can kind of go on and on and on. They all take a, you know, that, that book of the Bible for value investing from Ben Graham, and they've all kind of branched off from it. And they've taken a little bit from each of these other things and combined it with what works for their personality and what they're comfortable with. Because as Charlie said, uh, in a book I was reading just recently, it's really important that you sleep at night. <laughs> and, if the, if the stock market is causing you not to be able to sleep at night, then you're not doing something right. And so, you know, and as he said, he and Warren sleep great. So, <laughs> you know, I think that 
that is something that you just kind of have to, you know, she says also here, should I speculate? I personally would not, um, especially, you know, when you're closer to the finish line than the beginning, you're younger like Andrew is, you know, if you make a mistake, you, you know, you can roll with it and move on. But, you know, as we get closer to the finish line, unless you have a small part of your money you just want to play with, then go for it. But otherwise, no, it needs to, you know, I would, I would be serious about this and I would not take chances and, you know, go all in on Uber when it goes public. I mean, I just, that's, that's a recipe for disaster. A hundred percent agree. Just to piggyback one last time on what you were talking about risk tolerance. I also think that as you get better and you get more knowledgeable as time goes on and, and you immerse yourself in the value investing world, you, you start to become more comfortable and you start to know what that risk looks like, what that entails. And, and, and maybe you either become more comfortable with, with risk or you become more confident in the fact that maybe when I first started, I didn't know how much risk I wanted to take. But now that I've learned more and I've invested, you know, I've, I've had some stocks for a couple months, then, you know, now you have a better sense of what your risk tolerance is. So there's nothing wrong with, you know, investing part of your money instead of all of it. Um, when you're just first starting out. And I know I certainly did. I started with my one stock, which I bought Microsoft, just one share. It was like $25 at the time. And then I moved on and I, I think I spent like a couple hundred here or there. I remember buying Volkswagen. I remember buying Corning. Uh, and, you know, just, just had a couple stocks and I was just learning the whole time and just building that confidence over time until I finally got to a point where I did what I do in the real money portfolio of the e-leather, which is investing $150 a month. Also feel, did that for some time. And then when I had a Roth IRA rollover, then I felt comfortable having those picks follow my e-leather picks as well. So it was all a long process. It didn't happen all at once. Um, Susan talks about being on episode 16. So I'm assuming she's relatively newer to everything we have and everything we teach. So I would really talk about, you know, don't be too scared about missing out. Don't don't feel that way. There's no there's nothing wrong at all with taking your time and, and building that confidence over time. So I guess that's the last thing I would say about it. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. I really like that. You know, just think of it as building blocks. Every time you learn something new, it goes on top of something else that you've already learned and it helps you understand things better. And it also give you a lot more confidence that you're doing the right thing and you're making the right decisions because knowledge is power. And the more that you know, the more confident you're going to be in the decisions that you make. I just, I guess just one little analogy, think about what it is you do for a living. And if you've been doing it for a while, you're very comfortable with what it is you're doing. You understand it and you know what you got going on. And when you make a decision, by and large, 95% of the time, if not more, you're confident that you're making the right decision. And it's simply because you've been doing it. You have the knowledge to, to help you base your decision and make the right decision. So it's a, it's the same it's the same aspect when you're thinking about investing in a stock market. It's just learning, learning and then using that knowledge to help you make your decisions. I guess so kind of moving on to the next uh, round of questions, if you will. Uh, she asked, do we buy aristocrats and kings at any price? If not, what is the best measure to use to get it at a discount? Price to book or some percentage from its 52-week high? What are your thoughts on that, Andrew? Hey, you. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. 
You won't regret it. Okay, so I think uh, you'll probably know what I'm going to say. First thing I would say... <laughs> I do. But... <laughs> There's people in the audience too who are chiming. They're raising their hand silently, right? Somebody in, is in their car right. raising their hand as they're driving on their commute. So we, we did a... We did a complete guide on Dividend Aristocrats. So that was episode 49. We also touched on it um, when we interviewed Ben Reynolds from Sure Dividend. Um, that was episode seven. But Dividend Keens and Dividend Aristocrats, just to give you the 30-second pitch here, those are just stocks that have raised their dividends. They have a track record of raising their dividends consecutively for a certain amount of time. So dividend aristocrats, that's 10 years. Any stock that's risen their dividend 10 years consecutively becomes called an aristocrat. And I can't remember what the Keens are. I don't know if that's 25 or 50. It doesn't really matter. But be, you know, these are obviously the, the ones that we want to buy. These are the most ideal situation stocks. When you buy, you know, think about spending 100 bucks to buy a stock. When you first bought it, it gave you $3 in dividends. And let's say 10 years later, you're getting like $50 in dividends because they're just raising it every year. That's super cool. And you only have to put the money in once and you got this growing income stream. I hope that's not hard to understand. The problem is, is one, you're looking at past performance on the stock. So just because you know there's no rule in nature that says, well, you know, this stock and this business was able to raise their dividend for 15 years. So that means for the next five years you're guaranteed an income that that also goes up over time. That's not what we're saying at all. And so when you want to look at dividend aristocrats, dividend keens, you have to realize that past performance doesn't guarantee future results, but you know, it can be a good indicator. So we we Take that in mind when we're looking at these stocks. The other thing we want to understand is that just because they have this title doesn't give them any sort of exceptions. We want to look at them just like any other stock, and that's what it is. It is a stock. So what happens to stocks that tend to be overvalued? Well, they tend to eventually return to that intrinsic value and and tend to trade somewhere around there. And I'm talking about, you know, over the very, very long term, I'm not talking about a Netflix, which has been overvalued for like six years. I'm talking about maybe Netflix in 20 years, right? So you have to understand that, yeah, it's nice to get that increasing dividend, but if you bought it when it was just so overvalued, you'll still lose money on the deal, even if your income's increasing over time. So 100%, there is no reason to buy an aristocrat or a king at any price. You want to make sure it's still undervalued. You're still looking at it the same way as you would with any other stock. And that means taking a value investing approach, investing with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety, looking for those stocks that trade at a discount to their intrinsic value. Well, how do you know what their intrinsic value is? Well, lucky for you, we have over 100 episodes where we try to talk about that as much as we can. Um, she also asked, if not, what is the best measure to use to get a discount price to book or some percentage from its 52-week high? And again, that's not any one answer. There's no one special way. I, I definitely have my method, right? I have the value trap indicator and I use that on every single stock I buy, but it's not a panacea. Um, I'm, I'm making sure that I'm not buying a bad stock, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily a good stock. So you want to look at other things and make sure you're looking at all the metrics, you know? The value trap indicator looks at a ton of metrics. It's not just the price to book. It's not just the growth. It's price to book, price to sales, price to earnings, 
I want to look at the balance sheet. How's the debt? How's the cash situation? All those things. So not one easy answer, but luckily kind of goes back to everything we've been saying so far today. Take your time, absorb as much as you can and build your skill set. And that's how you'll give yourself the best chance to find the best stocks. Yeah, that was very well said. And really, I guess the only thing that I would throw out there for helping answer this question or give you an idea of kind of how to go about looking at those. One of the things that I do with the aristocrats and kings is I want to buy them too, just like everybody else, but I'm not going to overpay for them. So one of the things that I do is I set up a screener to screen for them every single month. And I use it based on the metrics that I learned from Andrew a long, long time ago in the free ebook that he offers that has a list of all the different metrics and what you could kind of look for with the PE and the P price to book and the price to sales and the debt to equity and some of those things to give you just a rough idea of whether you want to investigate in this company more. And generally, when you use that screener to look for companies, those are going to be companies, how you set them they're going to be in in some way shape or form at a discount now how much of a discount that that's going to be more research that's going to be involved but it will give you kind of a a playing field and so if you run all the aristocrats through that screener and none of them come up then that to me is like okay move on to the next month just wait just wait just wait and you that's really kind of what you want to do because, you know, Andrew was right on the money when he said, even if you buy it at any price, it will revert to the mean. Statistically, that's just the way it works is eventually it will revert to the mean and it will go back to what its you know intrinsic value is at some point. It may happen in six months. It may happen in 16 years, but it will happen. And when that does, you are going to lose money, even if you are getting a great dividend. And so it's not really really where you want to get into. And I think that's, you know, the simplest way that I could give you to at least give you an idea of whether these companies could be undervalued and would be possibly ripe for an investment right now. With the stock market being as high as it is and with, you know, the PE ratios, whether it's a Schiller PE or just a regular sheet, uh, regular PE, those are at all time highs for the history of the stock market. It's going to be tough to find the aristocrats are kings that are going to be at a discount to their intrinsic value. It's just, you know, I'm not trying to be, you know, Debbie Downer here, but it, it's, you know, right now it's going to be a challenge to find some of those that are at a discount, but it doesn't mean you don't try and it doesn't mean you don't look. Yeah. Th- uh, thank you for that practical example. That was excellent. I like, I like that answer a lot. Thanks. All right. So moving on to the next question uh, for earnings growth. uh, Am I looking at EPS over time? What are your thoughts, Andrew? Okay. So yes, kind of. That's the answer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I talk, I talk, so growth is something that's a lot harder to talk about and quantify than value. So everything we've talked about so far is value, right? Overvalued, undervalued, intrinsic value. When it comes to the growth, there's a million different ways and a million different formulas you can use. And so everybody's kind of, I guess you can say the same thing about valuation. Everybody's going to have their own way to do it. So there's no, there's no surefire way. When I do the value trap indicator, that formula looks at just EPS growth. So 
the reason for EPS growth and, and well, I'm sorry, no, no, no. It looks at um, net earnings growth. So let's talk about the differences of that just for a quick second. We'll get a little technical. Um, net earnings, net income, that's like the total dollar value. And that's how it grows over time. So if a company earns $100 billion in profit and you know next year they do 120, then they had 20% growth, right? So the value chart indicator would see that as a 20% growth on, on one year. If you look at EPS growth, um, what they do with the earnings is they just, they, they take the shares outstanding into consideration. So uh, we talked about shares outstanding a lot in the Back to the Basics series. You can go back, episode 43 is where that starts. But basically, um, shares outstanding go into the picture. So that can be a good or a bad thing. So the reason why I prefer net earnings is because a company can make their earnings per share look better than their actual net earnings growth simply by spending shareholder money. So it's kind of it's kind of a it's like a double negative in a way. Um, so we saw this recently. Um, twenty eighteen had a lot of it for sure. So we had stock buybacks. So these companies have a bunch of cash. They have a bunch of profits. And instead of reinvesting in the business or giving it back to shareholders in a dividend, they take that and they buy back shares. So that's good for shareholders because you're getting higher earnings per share. You're essentially getting a higher percentage ownership of the company because now there's less shares. So you, you own a bigger slice of the pie. But if they pay, if they pay, if the, if the company paid, too much of a price for those shares if, if the stock was already overvalued, well, they're kind of wasting that money. It, it could have been used more efficiently elsewhere, arguably. So, and, and, and to kind of add on to that, you can have a company where, well, really the company didn't do much as far as growth, but because they were so aggressive with share buybacks, um, their EPS growth looks huge. So everybody thinks that the company has growth when really they're just buying back shares. You can argue the other way too, and, and I get. It, and I'm not saying net earnings is always better than EPS. I'm just, these are the facts, okay? So that all said, um, so I use the, the, the value chart indicator will will calculate EPS and that's, or I'm sorry, net, net income. And that's what it will use for the formula. What I will do to make sure that, so, so the other thing, um, so if if a company can make net earnings look bad by buying back shares, it can also make EPS look bad by diluting shares. So just on the one side as a buyback can make EPS look better, a dilution can make EPS look worse. And again, the same kind of situation where the business could be growing their net income, but you know, uh the situation's different based on what they're doing with the shares. And you can also have other arguments for this, and I don't want to go into those. So what I like to do when I'm looking at value chart indicator on stock is I like to look at the net the net income. And then what I'll do is I'll look at the earnings per share, but I won't okay, so so what I'll do is I'll look at the I'll look at the shares outstanding, right? So if I see the shares outstanding have gone up or down then maybe I will take that into consideration along with what the value trap indicator calculated for the net income. And so 
that's something you want to do. And so the other thing that I like to look at is shareholders equity. And you can do the exact same things with all with that, where um, you can look at book value per share, or you can just look at book value. Book value is the same as shareholders equity. So I like to factor that into, I like to look at different time periods. I like to look at one year, three year, five year, 10 year. So there's not one answer. And I would say my approach is evolving over time. I'm prioritizing different things. But I think that's the way I look at it is it's almost splitting hairs in a way. I think if if you have a, what you perceive as a good business, it has a good business model, it makes a great product, it has a good balance sheet, and it trades at a reasonable valuation. I think all of those things are 80 to 90% of what you need in order to find a good stock investment. I think we can get as deep and granular or as general as you want with earnings growth, company growth, and again, it goes back to what I was talking about earlier. Past performance does not guarantee future results. So hopefully that answers the question. I Hopefully it wasn't discouraging. I like looking at that kind of stuff and, and those numbers and looking at the differences in the metrics. Maybe you don't, and that's totally okay too. So however you want to go, hopefully I've added some color and given you more to chew on and, and give you kind of a, a push in the right direction there. That was all great stuff. And I think really the only thing that I want to tag on that, <clears throat> excuse me, is when when I'm looking at earnings growth, I go about it a little bit differently. Again, here this is, you know, the differences between uh what Andrew and I look at is I look at the owner earnings as opposed to just the earnings. So I go uh, I guess a couple extra steps farther and again my view on this has evolved as I've read more, as I've learned more from Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and some of the guys that I really go up to, as they talk about these things, I've evolved some of my thoughts on this. And one of the things that I try to take into consideration, just like Andrew was with the different aspects of shareholder equity and those kinds of things, I also try to look at it, where's the company in its cycle of business? For example, if I look at a company like Walmart, Walmart has been around for a while and they would be considered, I guess, in my mind, more of a stable company that is growing, but not growing, you know, tremendously fast. Whereas if I look at a younger company that maybe has just come out of the IPO and they've been in, they've been in business or not business, but they've been public for like five or 10 years, then they're still going to be in kind of their infancy and they're going to be looking to grow as fast as they can. And so their mindset and what they're trying to do with that company is completely different than what Walmart is trying to do. You know, Walmart has a much different outlook on life because they've been around longer. I guess think of us as people, you know, when you're 12, 15, 18 years old, you think you know everything and you go out there and you try to do everything. When you're 30, you realize you don't know everything, but you still want to try to do everything. And when you get to be 50, you realize you don't know a thing and you can't do anything because you're too tired all the time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so <laughs> it's not entirely true, no, but you true. know, no, it's, it's so a, true. Well, at least the first two parts of it, so. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's the same thing with a company. So when you're looking at the earnings growth, you have to take, I think you have to take some of that into consideration. And I got that idea from uh, the professor Damodaran that I've talked about many, many times. And he talks a lot about that as he looks at the evolution of the company and where they are in their 
business cycle, whether they're a, a young, growing company, whether they're more of a stable, mature company, or whether they're a company on the decline. And those are all things that you have to take into consideration when you're looking at the earnings growth of the company. And I think that's just kind of a, a smart way to do it. And so I, again, I do the same thing that Andrew does. I try to look at a shorter time period, one or two years, then maybe I'll look to three to five and then I'll look at 10 years. Another thing that I like to try to do, it's getting a little harder now because we're getting farther removed from it, but is go back and look at, at how the company did during the last big downturn in the market. So during the 2008 to 2010 period. So look at the company and see what they did during that time period. I was just recently looking at uh, Hormel and Walmart, and both of them did actually quite well during that time period. And that was not surprising, but a little bit. And so those are things that can give you a little bit of peace of mind as well as you're looking at investing in a company, because you know if they do poorly in in one of the worst downturns in the history of the stock market, then that can give you some confidence that they can kind of weather any other storms that might come their way. So those are all things that you know, again, as you learn more and get more experience, these are different things that you can pick up as you're going along. So I hope that helps answer that question. Oh, yeah, I think it did. Um, can we, is there a chance we can get more clarity on what you mean about your owner's earnings sometime in the future? Absolutely. Yes. I'm working on a blog post. Uh, I've been working on it for about 17 years. And, uh, <laughs> it just seems like that. Uh, I will, I will have, I will have that done very soon. And, and then we will be able to talk about that on the podcast as well. All right. Well, I speak for everybody who's listening that we're all looking forward to it. All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our discussion for today. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and picked up a thing or two that you can help, help you learn in your investing. So remember, it's all about building blocks and it's all about knowledge. The more you learn, the better you're going to be. So without any further ado, I'm going to sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.